take your Bibles and turn again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And we will read verses 10 through 17. Although this is our last message in the armor, uh, we've been looking at that for several weeks now, following up our study of Jude. We, we talked about Jude. We saw that Jude challenged us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that our job, our responsibility is not to just casually let error uh, become a part of a church life, but we are to contend for the truth, contend for the faith that had been delivered to the saints. And, and we saw all that, that Jude warned us about in there. We looked at all that uh, fairly much in depth. And, and so following that up, uh, several people asked me at the end of that series, okay, that's fine, but how do we do that? And so one of the things I thought would be helpful is for us to think about what the Apostle Paul says about the armor uh, that is found in Ephesians chapter 6. And so for the last seven weeks or so, we have been looking piece by piece at the armor and at spiritual warfare and spiritual battle that takes place in the believer's life every day. And how you defend from that, how you fight that, how you stand firm. Paul says, stand firm, stand firm. That's his, his admonition to us, his command to us. And so how do you do that? And so we looked at each piece of the armor. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we, uh, I, I was not correcting the Apostle Paul, but I changed places in this final verse, and we did the sword of the Spirit last week because of, of D now, and all the young people have been talking about the Word of God all weekend, and so I wanted to, to kind of bring that in to tie in with what they had been doing. So I, I moved the sword of the Spirit in the fifth place, and today we go back to the helmet of salvation, which is in that same verse with the sword of the Spirit. And we will end with that today, Lord willing, and begin John's gospel next Sunday, Lord's willing, Lord willing. Listen to what Paul says in verses 10 through 17 of the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, in other words, every piece of it, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, that is the word of God, the objective truth of God's word, believing in it, trusting in it, and holding fast to it. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that is the practical righteousness that is born out of the imputed righteousness of Christ into our life. It guards the emotions. It guards the midsection, Paul would say, where the, the Jewish believer and, and the Roman thought that was the seat of the emotions. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is Christ's righteousness. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And, and if you realize every piece of this armor is, is, a, is a ministry of Christ to us. We, we stand firm in Christ. Bottom line. And he is to be exalted in all of this. Verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we saw how the shoes help you stand firm in battle. With the, protected against the, the hidden uh, objects in the ground that the enemy might put there the thick hard sole protected the bottom of the feet and the, the lacing up around the ankles protected for stability to help you stand firm 
And the gospel of peace is knowing that we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, we who were once enemies of God, we who stood against him, now are at peace with God. And verse 16, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we saw that Paul was thinking about that, that shield, that, that door-sized, large shield uh, that, that, he, that the soldier would use to really get down behind and, and they would get side by side and all around them and even on top of them they'd hold the shield to protect from arrows that were shot that had been dipped in a flammable substance and shot toward them with a desire of hitting their body and just bursting into flames and, and burning them if it couldn't pierce them to kill them. At least it would put them out of the battle because of severe burns. And we saw that those flaming missiles of the evil one, while they're not literal fire, they are those seducing temptations that Satan will send our way. Satan can't make you sin, but Satan can certainly give you beautiful and alluring and, and glamorous uh, uh, seducing temptations that will come your way. And those are the things that faith, the shield, which is faith, will help you to be able to extinguish. Because you trust God, you believe God, you don't believe the evil one. You don't believe the one who's seeking to lead you astray. And then verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we saw last week that that sword of the Spirit is, is not the broad sword. We'll talk about the broad sword a little bit here in a minute. But, but it's not the broad sword, but it's the makara. It's the, it's the small sword that's used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not something you just go charging in and slinging about. But you use it very skillfully and very specifically. That's the sword that Paul's talking about here. And he says that, that is the word of God. But he doesn't use the word logos there. We saw he uses the word rhema. And the difference is the logos is the belt of truth. The logos is the objective written word of God, that which we have. The rhema is the logos that has been internalized. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you, David said. Or how can a young man keep his way pure? He does that by keeping it according to the word of God. The rhema is not some kind of special revelation. The rhema is not some kind of special utterance of knowledge. But the rhema is the logos that has been internalized and that the Spirit calls to our attention and calls, uh, calls up in our life when we need to stand firm with the sword, when we need to resist the evil one. Just in the, as in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he immediately quoted the word of God, the scripture, the logos, and Satan was defeated. If we have to go running and say, I know there's something in the Bible about this, and I'm going to see if I can't find it, it's too late. The objective truth is the important thing, but the objective truth is only useful as a sword when it has been internalized in the life of the believer, when we've fed on it, when we've meditated on it, when, when we've studied it, when we've made it a part of our life. That's when it becomes the rhema, the internalized word that the Spirit can call to our remembrance in times of need, in times of battle. Sword is necessary for the battle to be won. And he talks about, in verse 17, the helmet of salvation. That's where we come to this morning. The helmet of salvation. Now, as Paul was laying there, or sitting there, in his prison cell, chained to the Roman soldiers, looking at each piece, he looked at that helmet, and he saw that helmet... On the, on the soldier at all times. A Roman soldier would never go into battle. Really, he would never even stand guard 
without his helmet on, without putting on his helmet. The helmets were basic two in nature. Some were made of leather with metal framing about it that gave it security and gave it more protection. But the type more than likely that Paul is talking about here that he's looking at on the Roman soldier is one that is a molded solid cast metal. It's, it's fairly heavy, it's fairly uh, uh, weighty, but it, but it fits over and it fits per perfectly shaped for that particular soldier and it protects his head by metal, metal covering uh, completely. It's very important in battle. Obviously, it protects from the arrows that might get past the, uh, the shield. It, it keeps the head from being hit by the arrows, but it also was a protection against the broadsword. Now, the broadsword, as opposed to the makara, the broadsword, the romphaya, is a, is a word that, or is a sword that was designed primarily to, to inflict severe damage to the head uh, by the enemy. As a matter of fact, it was primarily made to be used not in standing warfare, but in warfare on horseback. And, and, and this broadsword would be taken, it was about, the blade was anywhere from three to four inches, uh, three to four feet long with a large handle, much like the handle of a baseball bat, and you would hold a broadsword in much the same way you might hold a baseball bat. And from horseback, riding through the midst of the enemy, the person with the broadsword, it's hard to do this in a sport coat, but, but the person with the broadsword would swing the sword from side to side on the horse as he, as he charged through the, uh, the midst of his enemy. Obviously, if a soldier does not have a helmet on his sword and this broadsword is coming through on, uh, with a soldier on horseback being swung, it's very likely that uh, the head would be split asunder by the broadsword. So the, the soldier wore the, broad, uh, wore the helmet primarily to protect against this broadsword. Now, I don't think it's hard to imagine what the Apostle Paul must have been thinking about when he said the helmet, which is the helmet of salvation, protects the head. He's thinking about the thinking. He's thinking about the ability to know. He's thinking about the area of knowledge and wisdom in, a, in, a, in the person's life, in the Christian's life. He's talking about the helmet of salvation, like the breastplate would protect your emotions, the helmet of salvation will protect your thinking and your thought life as you charge into battle. But what is the salvation of the helmet of salvation? I really don't think Paul is saying, now listen, get in the battle and, and get you a belt and a breastplate and some shoes and a, and a shield and a sword, or, or before the sword, I guess, and, and then get saved. Then come to knowledge of Christ. Come to understand who Christ is. I mean, if, if, you're, not, if you're not born again, if you're not saved, you're not even in the battle. So, so there's no helm, you don't get all these other things and then finally come to a point where you're saved. I think in order to understand what Paul is saying about protecting our thought life and protecting our, our thinking as a believer, we have to go back to a very important uh, uh, concept that sadly many believers fail to comprehend from the Word of God today. And that is what might be referred to as the three aspects of salvation. Salvation has three dimensions to it, three aspects to it, if you will. There is the, the past aspect. The past aspect is, I have been saved. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. When Christ died on the cross and, and, and he took my sins with him there and I placed my faith in his finished work, I was saved. Past tense, right? 
the, the theological term, the biblical term for that is justification. I've been justified. I've been declared right. I've been declared not guilty by the judge of the universe, Almighty God, because of the finished work of Christ. And, and there is that past aspect. If you're a believer, you can say, I have been saved. I have trusted Christ. I have put my faith in him, and he has given me new life, and I have been saved. And Paul talks about that in, in numerous places, and Jesus talked about that in the Gospels. We'll see it in the Gospel of John as we study that clearly, that you can be saved by placing your faith and your trust in Christ. But there's also a present dimension or a present aspect of salvation. And that present aspect of salvation is what the, what the theological term is, is, is sanctification. It's sanctification. It's growing in Christ. It's, it's, it's not just being saved or having been saved, but it is now being saved from the power of sin. If you are in Christ and you are putting on the armor and you are walking with the Lord and you are studying his word, then sin ought to have less power over you today than it did yesterday. It ought to have less power over you tomorrow than it does today. Sanctification is a process of spiritual growth whereby those who are saved are now being saved from the power of sin. Saved absolutely from the penalty of sin. The debt, the debt has been paid, and the debt has been declared paid in full in the believer's life. You have been saved, but you are being saved from that power of sin. We still struggle with sin. There's no doubt about it. Every one of us in this room who know Christ still struggle with sin. But there is that progressive growth of sanctification, that, that present aspect of salvation that is freeing us from the power of sin. Then there is the future aspect. The future aspect of salvation is what we call theologically glorification. Uh, justification, we are saved. Sanctification, we are being saved. Glorification, we will be ultimately and completely saved, not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but in glorification, we are literally saved and set free from the presence of sin. That doesn't happen on this earth. That doesn't happen as long as we're occupying this body of flesh. That happens when we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. That comes, that comes when either he comes to get us in the second coming or we go to see him in death to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord, and there's that glorification. There's being set free from the presence of sin. You want to worry about sin in eternity. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good thought to me. That, 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 that's pretty good. Because uh, I still struggle with it here every single day. But when I'm there, I won't even struggle with it. Why? Because I won't have any at all in my life and nobody around me with. See, some other sin I struggle with on earth is sin with other people. It's your sin that I struggle with, but you won't even have it either. So we'll all stand there in the presence of God, glorified, and, and that is the future hope. That's what Paul talks about when he talks about the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. This future aspect of salvation, this idea of glorification, is, is I really think what Paul is talking about here when he says put on the helmet of salvation. 
I, I think the helmet is primarily the ultimate hope of salvation, the, the, the looking forward to it, the knowing that it's coming, and knowing that while I struggle right now and I, 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 I fail right now sometimes, that there is coming a day and I see it out there in the future not because I'm good, not because I can do it, but because I know my Lord is in charge. And I go and I, I press on toward him to be like him. So it's the, it's the ultimate aspect, it's the future aspect that Paul, that Paul is talking about here in this, uh, uh, this helmet of salvation, I think. I think you can defend that through several other things written in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 8, in verses 22 through 25 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth uh, together until now. And not only this, but all, we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit, that is the, the, the past aspect and the present aspect, we have the first fruits of the Spirit here in our life. Even we ourselves still groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And listen to this. For in hope we have been saved. But hope, that is, uh, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we await eagerly for it. Paul says, listen, this is, this is what your helmet is. It's, it's knowing in your thinking, knowing in your thought life that we don't have everything yet. We got the first fruits and boy, that's pretty good. But, but we also long and eagerly await what God is going to do in our lives in that future tense of, of salvation. Without the element which says that we will ultimately be without sin, there's not a whole lot of hope for now. As a matter of fact, it would be kind of like running a race in which there's no finish line. Can you imagine that? What kind of race would that be? We're going to go out here today and we're going to race and see who wins. Well, how do we know who wins if there's no finish line? We just say, hey, let's just take off and race, and we don't have something that we're shooting for, something that we're aiming for, something that we're longing for, then, then the race is meaningless. I don't run a lot of races, but I've been told that. It, it's meaningless. And, and this hope of our salvation, this hope of glory, this ultimate hope of salvation in eternity is what Paul is referring here to as a helmet. Or 1 Peter, as, as Peter writes in, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 through 6, when he simply says this, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance, that which is in the future, which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation already uh, ready to be revealed in the last time. This, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter says, listen, we don't, we don't mind a little pain. We don't mind a little effort in this life, as long as there's a goal to reach, as long as we see that God has 
has preserved for us and reserved for us in heaven an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled, cannot fade away, but is reserved for you in heaven. You who in heaven are good enough to get it, you who in heaven are strong enough in your own power to, to hang in there? No. You who is reserved for in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's future salvation. And the helmet is in our thinking that which is yet to come. There will be an end. There's a goal. There's a finish line. And that's what gives us protection as a helmet of salvation. Now, what do we need protection from? Well, talked about the Roman soldiers' protection was from arrows and, and primarily the broadsword. And, and that was the, the most critical one to be protected from as a soldier would come through slinging the broadsword from the back of a horse. And, and so Satan, I think, also has a broadsword. And, and Satan's broadsword, in, in many ways, like the, the enemy of the Roman soldier's broadsword, has two edges on it. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. It's sharp. It's, it's heavy. It's powerful. It can do a lot of damage, Satan's broadsword can. I think his broadsword consists of two elements, two edges. One edge is discouragement. Discouragement is not so much a matter of the emotion as it is a matter of the thinking. Discouragement is not so much a matter of, of just saying, I just don't feel good today or I just I feel kind of down. Discouragement is when we think wrongly. And, and Satan's broadsword desires to get us to thinking wrongly. I, I can't help but think of one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, Elijah. Elijah is that bold one for God who goes up on Mount Carmel and, and challenges the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asher. And he says, says I want to have you build this altar and I want you to build it good and then ask Baal to send fire and consume it. And, and, and they do and they, they go all day and they cut themselves and they scream and they cry and they dance and they, they wail and they cut themselves some more and say, Baal, see how sincere we are. We're, we're cutting ourselves and they bleed and they, they make a mess and nothing happens. Elijah steps up to the altar. And he said, I tell you what, go down there to the sea and bring up some buckets of water. And I want you to take, as he's repaired it after they've made a mess of it and they got the offer notice, I want, you to, I want you to dig a trench around it and I want you to water it down. I want you to pour water on it, pour water on it, pour water on it and, and until the trench fills up and it's soaking wet. It's not the best way to start a fire. And so they do it. They go and get it and they bring it up there and, and Elijah just quietly goes up before the altar and he says, Lord, I know you hear me, and I know you're the real, living and the true God. I want you to show yourself to all these people, the people of Israel, who have bowed the knee to Baal and who have bowed the knee to the Asher. I want you to just show yourself. And in a moment, the fire came down, consumed the altar, destroyed it, took the sacrifice, burned up the altar, lapped up all the water that was in the trenches so that nothing was even wet around there. And all of a sudden, God proved himself. And, and Elijah was able to look at the people and say, choose you this day who you will serve. If God be God, serve him. And if be all be God, serve him. But make a, make a stand today. And boy, the power of God was shown. Takes the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asher out. And what does he do to them? 
kills them. They're all executed as false prophets. And, and, and these were Jezebel's prophets. Now, Elijah has just stood firm in the face of an enormous enemy and is proven uh, by the presence of God who is God. And, and he's standing there knowing that God, the ultimate God, the only God, is on his side. And, and Jezebel hears about it, and she sends word. And she says, let me tell you something. Get word to, 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 to Elijah that made the same thing happen to me that happened to my prophets if by this time this evening or by, by evening time I haven't done the same thing to Elijah that he did to my prophets. He's heard those words. And he, he started thinking, well, that's the queen. She's, she's got power. Ahab's her husband. I mean, they rule over Israel. And so, so he took off running and he found himself a tree and he laid down under the tree and he just set out, cried out, Lord, Lord, I, I'm, I'm a failure. I can't do anything. Je, Jezebel's out to get me. Lord, just let me die. Now, he didn't want to die. I know that for a fact because if he wanted to die, all he'd do was hang around. Jezebel would have gladly accommodated that. He didn't want to die. But he became discouraged. And, and I find out that many times in our lives, after the greatest spiritual victory, or the greatest spiritual, if you will, mountaintop, like on Mount Carmel, that when you have the greatest spiritual experience, that it's right after that that Satan's able to take his broadsword and swing it against your thinking and against your head. And if you don't have the helmet on, if you don't understand what the ultimate is and what the goal is, then you find yourself discouraged just like Elijah was. Elijah probably had something of battle fatigue. And when you have spiritual battle fatigue, you get tired from struggling and when you do, you lose sight of the fact that salvation has this third dimension, this future dimension. It's coming. When tr Satan tries to hit you with discouragement, I think you have to look at verses like Romans 13, 11 and 12. Paul says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. You could say that to Paul. Well, I thought salvation was already ours. We have been saved. We are being saved. Yes, but there is an ultimate, there is a complete salvation that's yet to come. And Paul says it's closer today. It's closer today than it was when we first believed. In other words, we're getting closer to the finish line. Don't quit now. In, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, Luke tells us that uh, in these words, he says, Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. They ought to pray and not lose heart. What is losing heart? That's discouragement. What is the remedy to discouragement? Well, Jesus indicated in Luke 18 that the, the, the remedy, the way to wear the, the helmet properly when, when discouragement comes along, when, when losing heart comes along, is start praying. Many of us, that's when we don't pray at all. That's when we go and feel sorry for ourselves and hide in the closet or hide in our room and do everything in the world we can think to do except praying don't lose heart don't get discouraged don't let the broad sword of Satan win you know I really do want to stand in front of my commanding officer one day my Lord 
and, and I want to be able to stand there. I, I don't want to stand there with shame on my face because I quit in the middle of the battle, because I became discouraged. But I want to be able to stand there and say with the Apostle Paul, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith because the power of God was protecting me through it. And I looked to him, I didn't look to myself. The second edge of this broadsword quickly that we've got to look at, and that is, I think, it's doubt. We've already talked about how in the, in the belt of truth and in the breastplate of righteousness and, and, and with the, the, the shield of faith, Satan's desires to get us not to believe God. But I think it even goes deeper in this helmet, in our thinking, when we, we tend to just, we fail to believe what God has said about what we have in him how secure we are in him. We fail to believe him that if we have past salvation, if we really have past salvation, justification, and we really have sanctification, God at work within us, then future salvation is not something we hope for in the sense of, oh boy, I really hope it happens. It's something we have a true and living hope for. We know it's coming. It, it's the, we wear the helmet by realizing that if we have the past, then we also have future salvation. It's what we might call the security of the believer. It's what we might call eternal life or eternal salvation in Christ. I could go all through the scripture and do this, but I'm going to give you several verses I want you to just think about as we, we kind of come to a close here. First is John 6, 37 through 40. We'll look at those in depth about a year from now in John's gospel study. Uh, but just for the moment, I want you to hear what it says. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not, I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Not temporal life, not temporary, not, not some life, but will have eternal life. And I myself will personally raise him up on the last day. Or John 10 27, we'll look at that in depth in a couple of years. My sheep hear my voice, verses 27 through 30. And I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's the helmet. That's the future salvation. That's guaranteed predicated on past salvation. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate the believer from Christ? Nothing. He names these things here, you know, life, death, angels, principalities, that's demons, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing. None of those. And, and he's just using those illustrative to basically say, nothing can do it. Nothing can. Represents everything. And nothing can. Or Philippians 1.6. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he, Christ Jesus, he, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm confident of this. That if he started working you, he doesn't give up. If he started working you, he doesn't quit. If he started working you, he says, oh, he's not worth it anymore. He's such a, he's such a loser, it seems like. No, if he started to work in you, he will complete it. He will perfect it. That's what the Word says. Or what we looked at to close Jude, I'll close this series with. Jude 24 and 25. Listen to this. Now to him, that is Christ, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who can keep you from stumbling, and to him who is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You see the, the assurance that Jude had, the confidence that Jude had in the power of God. Now let me tell you something. It, 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 it doesn't mean here that, well, you know, I made a decision and there's been no sanctification, so I, I won't worry about sanctification. I'll just be what I want to be now, and I'll know I'll get it in the end. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if you really have the past aspect, then you'll be, you'll be conscious of the present aspect, and you will know because of the present and the past that the future is absolutely secure. But just walk an aisle, sign a card, go through baptismal waters, or or, or do whatever, and say, oh, well, I'm fine now. I'll just not care about Christ. I'll not care about growing. I'll not care about any of that. That is ridiculous, biblically speaking. It's, it's a heavy theological term, ridiculous. Because he who began a good work in you will keep doing that good work in you, will keep perfecting that good work in you, will keep making that good work in you a reality from the time it began until the future. So your helmet is the knowledge of that future salvation. Your helmet is the ability to say, Satan, you're not going to cause me to doubt what God has said. You're not going to cause me to doubt what God has promised. You're not going to discourage me in the midst of a, of a spiritual success just because I've kind of exerted myself and gotten tired and worn out. You know, Elijah was worn out on that day, no doubt. You're, you're not going to do that, Satan. Your broadsword is ineffective. Because I'm wearing the helmet of salvation. When I'm discouraged, I pray. When I'm, when I'm losing heart, I pray. I trust in Him. I know Him. I know His salvation is, is not just a, 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 a sort of a, a general idea. I know it's a specific reality in my life. And that will control my thinking. You will not, you cannot control my thinking. Because I have the helmet of salvation and I know that it's true. Put on the whole armor of God. So that in that day you may be able to stand firm, to resist the wiles, the schemes, the, the trickery of the devil.
And when you've got the armor on, to stand firm in him. Paul said in that first verse, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in Christ Jesus. Don't think you can be strong in yourself. Don't think you can do it. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Stand firm. Let's pray. Father, I pray this day that the reality, the reality of the cross that bought our salvation for those who believe, that was applied to us by your Holy Spirit when we were blind and deaf and dead, is a reality that is your work. It's not our work. It's what you have done and what you are doing and what you are going to do. Lord, help us wear that helmet that our thinking not be distorted and destroyed. Lord, I can't help but rejoice in the truth of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus oh you mean you don't condemn us Lord when we fail you don't condemn us and, and bring your wrath on us when we don't do perfectly thank you Lord that you don't Thank you that when we stand in Christ, there's no condemnation because we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We stand empowered with the power of his strength. Thank you, Father, for protecting our emotions when we wear the breastplate, for protecting our thinking when we wear the helmet, for giving us your truth to put on as a belt for giving us, Lord, shoes of knowing that we are at peace with you because you declared it so, and it's a reality. Thank you, Lord, for taking the, the truth of the belt, the word, the truth of your word, and internalizing it in our lives that we might be able to use it even if we don't have a Bible in our hand because you call it back to our remembrance, what we put there. Father, thank you for your protective power in our lives. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.